say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Damn it with Beaver. This is part three of our traveling sister, Sister Barbara Daniels. Welcome back to the show, Sister Barbara. Thank you so much. I I am just looking so forward to hearing more of your missionary travels around the world. So let's start with where do you want to start? You've been so many different places. Uh, we did talk about New Guinea before. So where do you want to go to now? I think I would like to start with my weeks in Senegal. I was there about six weeks. And to locate it on the map, it's in the western part of North Africa. In fact, the big hub that comes out, if you look at a map, Dakar is the capital, and that's on that hump of mm -hmm. Senegal. It's known a lot in history as the launching place for the slaves, the ships taking the slaves from an island right off of Dakar to the New World. And I think one of the most poignant things I experienced there was the doorway that they pushed these slaves through. And it said on top, once you go through this door, despair. You have no hope. There's no return. Mm. And just seeing that it brought tears to my eyes because we all know the stories of slavery and how they were sold uh, yeah. to different countries. Well, this was their way to the new world. Mm -hmm. However, the Senegal I visited was a mixture of two main religions, Christianity and Islam. But unlike the world today, they got along. They respected each other's traditions and went out of their way to show that respect. For instance, where I slept in the house with the sisters, literally across the street was a mosque. The mosques were on a corner, literally. And you heard the call to prayer like at five o'clock in the morning and that was your alarm clock you didn't need an alarm clock <laughs> and they would be singing their prayers mm -hmm. on the other hand when the christians had their sunday services mm -hmm. the muslims very nicely kept down their sound system so that we could participate at our church services However, one interesting story was there was a big celebration. One of the sisters from that country 
was making her profession and her family was gathered and they decided to invite the Muslim neighbors so that, and the people who were literally surrounding this church, that they participated so there would be no interruptions in the sound system because you can't hear. And they enjoyed the camaraderie, the congratulations, and even the, the food. Mm-hmm. They were careful what kind of food they served. And afterwards, the iman pulled aside the family and said, we know what you did. You didn't want us to interrupt your celebration. And in gratitude for inviting us as friends and family, we want you to come to our celebration some evening during Ramadan. Because they, they don't even swallow their spit during the day. And that kind of exact, they absolutely nothing is swallowed from sunrise till sunset. However, after sunset, they have a huge feast every Mm -hmm. day of Ramadan, every night of Ramadan. Mm -hmm. So they make up for it. But that strictness of the Islam religion during Ramadan, how they live, affected the Christian young people. And they came and asked, why don't we fast that way? Mm -hmm. Like during Lent, we have 40 days. That's our Ramadan. And it made us share what fasting means and why we fast to appreciate what we do have. For us, it's not a hardship to give up something to make us very um, agitated or yearning that we can't do something, but it's a share in the sufferings that Jesus Christ experienced for us, especially in his passion and death Mm -hmm. on the cross. And that we want to share in that, but not to our own detriment, but rather physically, but rather spiritually, that we don't want to cling to things we just have for the sake of owning and having. We don't want to cling to doing what I want, but go out of my way to show in love and kindness as Jesus did and gave us the example to reach out to those in need, those who do not have, those who live on the edge of society, who have no voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, In other words, show compassion. And when that teaching experience finished, our young people said, oh, that's why we fast, but in a different way. We fast from having too much, or we fast from having grudges, or we fast from unforgiveness, or we fast from not talking to people who are different than us. So it put it in a totally different spirituality, actually, of Mm -hmm. how to live. And so... um, Ramadan challenged us to rethink of what fasting ought to be truly uh, in the spiritual sense if we are following Jesus as his disciples. Hmm. One of the things in Senegal that really touched me was 
having a meeting in the sisters community. I was there for several weeks to help young sisters who came from uh, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, and the Congo with the sisters in Senegal to learn English. They, they knew it from studying it in school, but mm -hmm. they wanted to be able to speak, be able to not just read it. And so we had uh, me talking French to them and them talking English to me. So we were teaching each other how to become a little more communicative. I and have a question. Was, I just yes. set this up. You've learned so many different languages. How many languages do you actually know? Well, I'm fluent in French. I was pretty fluent in Spanish. I was pretty good in German. And Dutch is very similar to a German. German in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I had to be fluent in pidgin in Papua New Guinea. Uh, Spanish, I think I said that. Yeah, you did. Um, growing up, I could understand Slovak because my parents and grandparents spoke that. Okay. And when they realized I could understand it, they stopped talking in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was stupid enough as a little girl to say, I know what you said. All right. And yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't bright enough to keep my mouth shut. Um, and there's another language too. I can't think of it. But anyway. Okay. Uh, I just had a, I got a, a smattering of a <laughs> smattering of languages. Because it yes. seems like you're traveling to so many different parts of the world that you have to be able to communicate. And how are you doing that? You have to mm -hmm. learn the language. So, okay, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your story. No, I please just, do. That was just Here's a question interesting that popped point. in my head. <laughs> Somebody who is good in music also has the gift that use that side of the brain for language because language and music go together. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I played the trumpet. I played the piano, you know, so it adds up. Anyway, back to Senegal, uh, what happened, they had some older sisters there, and we made the arrangement that when we eat together, we're only going to speak English so they could get practice of please pass the bread, please pass the butter, or thank you, you know. And the older sisters there who didn't have to learn English wanted to learn how to say those things. And so it was very heartwarming for me because they wanted to be able to speak when they come to what we call um, chapters, community meetings, mm -hmm. where many people know English and they didn't want to be stuck only with French. They wanted to be able to say the nice things, the common things, uh, and so that was a lot of fun learning and I learned and they learned and they didn't fear making mistakes because I didn't fear making mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so it, it humbled me to think they're trying to imitate me, but I in turn let them know I'm learning more from them than they're learning from me. Yeah. Uh, we share and teach each other. It was like the barter system for language. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And um, the other thing there was 
which I just ran through very quickly when I think I ended my last um, episode two. Right, correct. Mm-hmm. Were anthills. Um, they were so tall. I was five three. I think now I'm five two, but I was five three. I'm five three and, and three were... quarters. <laughs> okay, there you go. Short people always add those extra quarter exactly. inch quarter. <laughs> exactly. Well, I came upon this huge pile. I thought it was sand under a tree. And the sister who was showing me around said, that's an anthill. And I do think anthills might be termites. Okay, I'm not sure. It's, they're not just our nice little ants. Mm-hmm. They're some kind of special ant. But they get so tall and so wide. Uh, and I think they fertilize something there. I'm not sure. But just to hear that huge thing is an anthill. They're under trees, and in Senegal, there's different kind of trees. There's um, they have different shapes. They're not our kind of shapes of trees, mm-hmm. and I lost my train of thought. You were talking about the ant hills. Yeah. Yeah. Not important. Okay. Okay. (laughs) That's like, okay. (laughs) One of the exciting things I experienced was the difference in, you can go from sandstorms where you can't see two feet in front of your face Mm -hmm. and into clear, blue, gorgeous skies, uh, serene, to the ocean side because it's on the Atlantic ocean and you can get the sea breezes coming in and all of a sudden you're standing at on the seashore and your back's to the sea. My back was to the sea and whoop, a wave comes and pulls you off your feet and you end up on your face in the sand wet. Wow. (laughs) But it made me stop and think. I eventually looked up on a map. Uh, Senegal is approximately across from uh, what would be Guatemala on our side of the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. And I would stand there and say, there's nothing in between. It's like 3,000 miles straight across ocean. And maybe this wave that hit me in the back pain i don't know which way the waves go in the cycles of the ocean but it made me realize how connected we all are mm-hmm. in so many ways uh this water may have touched the shore there and traveled somewhere and now it ended up here and today with global warming we're much more aware of how we're all interconnected our community worked with the missionaries of the sacred heart men who were from Germany, that was our foundation. So we followed the German missionaries in mission where the daughters of Our Lady of the Sacred Heart, our sister congregation was started in France and they followed the French missionaries. That's why they were in Senegal Mm -hmm. and we were not. So I had many of their young priests, their sisters, 
come to the sister's house just to meet me because they had never met a missionary sister of the Sacred Heart. And they would look me up and down and were shocked when I could speak to them in French. And they had all kinds of questions. Well, how do you get to know each other? Uh, but I was in France for five and a half years, part of this international meeting uh, group. We held meetings uh, for a month and classes. And some of these sisters actually attended those classes, came home to their country, all excited. I met a missionary sister. And they started telling my story and the beginnings of my congregation so that they wanted others to hear about our story, our sister congregation. And so when I traveled to these countries, a lot of them knew stories about our beginnings, and then they shared their stories with me. So it was a real learning experience of listening and learning and respecting each other and our life stories. And we all have stories to tell. Mm -hmm. And we all have things to learn and share. So uh, I'm going to stop Senegal there, okay, for okay. now. That's fine. Yeah. If you think of anything else, we can always jump back. Where, right. okay. let's spin the let's spin the uh, globe and see where are we going next? <laughs> okay, since I'm in Africa, okay. I'm going to go head south. You're going to cross over where the Atlantic Ocean comes in and it separates Senegal from the next southern countries. And I'm going to come to Namibia. Namibia is directly south. It borders Angola, Angola okay? Okay. And the Namib Desert, as opposed to in Senegal, they have the Sahara. Okay, now we're going, there's a break there, and we're going to the Namib Desert, which is over 1,200 miles long from north to south. It covers the Atlantic coast side of Angle, Angola, Namibia, and South Africa. So it's that whole side. And it's the oldest desert in the world because at one time it was all under the ocean. But as uh, landscapes change, a lot of the ocean floor uh became the desert. Uh, it was called, I think it's called the Skeleton Coast because there were a lot of shipwrecks along that, a lot of sandbars. Yeah. Interesting. And all of that sand, what, the water evaporated. Uh, today, the sea is rising. At that point, it was being dried up. Mm -hmm. And so you have the Namibian, Namib Desert. Namibia actually has two deserts. It has the Namib Desert, and then further east, it has the Kalahari Desert. The Namib Desert has yellow sand. The Kalahari Desert has red sand. So when you're flying over from South Africa, you, you can actually see where the two deserts meet. Oh, interesting. Yes. And there's a Kalahari Highway. It's a desert highway. And when I saw that, I, it blew my mind. This telephone poles on one side of the macadam road in a desert it, it's crazy and there's a sign you'll come and see 
and it says, do not leave the road because you can see all the shiny stuff. And what it is, is it's chips of diamonds. There's a lot of diamonds there. And uh, you forfeit your life if you try to steal anything. Oh, ooh, yes. okay. Wait, who kills you? I'm sure they have secret police doing things. Oh, uh, okay. So it's kind yes. of that kind of shady type thing. Oh, definitely. So, okay. But Namibia has a lot of minerals and diamonds. And it was at one time part of South Africa. They claimed it as one of their provinces for the riches and for this outlet to the sea, the Atlantic coast over mm -hmm. there. However, unfortunately, they also had apartheid because they belonged to South Africa. Mm -hmm. So, we have the stories when our sisters, originally from Germany in 1928, Namibia was a German province uh, after World War I. And they spoke Afrikaans. That's their common language. There's many tribal languages. But this was a German dialect. And so I could figure out a lot of what they were saying because there's a lot of German in it. And... The people, we were the first congregation to accept Native sisters. Now, that was like in 1960. Okay. There was still apartheid. And there's the stories. Uh, we had a hospital. Uh, there was a certain door the Black people had to go through, and they had their wards. Mm -hmm. uh, a certain door the white people went through, and they had their beds. Okay. Well, the sisters accepted these African women who wanted to become a sister. They had to have a separate door to come in, say, the left side of the building. Mm -hmm. And the white sisters came in on the right side of the building. The people and the police scrutinized the sisters to make sure they were keeping the apartheid rules. And they thought these black women going in were the servants of the sisters. They had no idea that once they came inside, they were equals. Mm -hmm. They were learning what it means to become a sister. They were learning scripture and prayer, and they were going to school. And they had no idea. The white sisters and the black sisters together cleaned, together cooked. Mm -hmm. They were true sisters in the Lord. And the police tried to catch them doing something wrong, but they never could. They just couldn't figure out why these black women were so happy. They wanted to keep coming back. But they weren't the sisters' servants. Mm -hmm. Right. They were the sisters' spiritual sisters. Anyway, um, there's a story uh, that one day, and the sisters knew they didn't know color. Everybody was a brother or a sister to them in Christ. Mm -hmm. There was a young man who came <clears throat> knocking at the door at night, and you never opened your door at night. Never. And um, this, she was an older sister, opened the door, and he begged her, please give me something to drink and something to eat, and I'll leave you. Please. He was at his wit's end mm -hmm. 
And she invited him in against all laws, all traditions. She sat him down at the table, gave him something to eat and drink, and uh, gave him food for the journey. And he left. And many years later, uh, there was a big celebration that they got their first African bishop in the Catholic Church. And uh, they're going up to greet him. And he calls this sister by her name. Hmm. And she looks at him and says, how do you know me? And he said, do you remember a young man who came to your door one night and you opened it and let him in and gave him food and drink and extra to take for his journey? And she goes, yes. He said, that was me. What you don't know is I was going to take my life that night. I had no hope. Everybody was against me. They were calling me all names and telling lies. So I was going to take my life that night. But your kindness gave me hope. And I said, God must have a reason for this. There must be a reason for my life. I cannot take my life because you saved it. So powerful. Now it's her bishop. Yeah. And that's one little story. It didn't happen to me, but our sisters retell it. Mm -hmm. And the story in his memory lives. And it's what one act of kindness can do to change a life. That is one of the features I actually have on this show is random acts of kindness. And I talk Mm -hmm. about how people with one little act can totally change the life of someone else. So Mm -hmm. that just totally ties in to the whole show that I do. Um, That's such a powerful story and how you can just one little thing that you did that you just thought was nothing was everything to someone else. Look, I'm crying. Yeah. <laughs> My listeners are going to be like, and Beaver, <laughs> Beaver's crying. <laughs> but that's what being a missionary is. Mm-hmm. You're, you're there to live the life of Christ, how he lived it with compassion. If anything, Jesus was always paying it forward in some way. He became one of us in love to show us how to live in love and compassion. And that's the be all and end all of our purpose and affecting that as we go through life. We don't know what we say or what we do, how somebody will be affected. And we don't do it to be noticed. We do it because it's the right thing to do. Right. It's, it's whatever you feel is your calling in life. And it's just, right. it's, that's just, I love that story. That's so powerful. And I'm so glad you shared that with us. Thank you. And, and that Even was, though it's not my personal story. No, I know, but it's still a really, and, but you've heard it and it's been shared oh, yes. repeatedly yes. Um, because she made a like, she totally changed this man's life. He went from wanting to kill himself to becoming a bishop. Yes. Yes. And not just a bishop. Didn't you say he was the first uh, African-American? Yes. yes. Yeah. No, or, well, African bishop African in that bishop, country. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. When in I hear country. African, I always want to say American right away. <laughs> no, he was an African in Africa. Yeah, he yes, was an African yes. in Africa. Yes. Powerful. Powerful. Um, what? 
Go ahead. No, I was going to say, are we going to stay with, uh, what is it, Zam? Where I don't remember where we even are anymore. Namibia. 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 <laughs> yeah, I do have. Namibia is a country mostly of sand. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a postcard in the country that shows sand and a person with her arms out saying, where are all the people? At the time when I was there, there were approximately a million people in the country. So that it's a big country, but not many people. And the way the coexistence of their several tribes, they have uh, this people who talk with cliques, mm. uh, people who uh, use blow darts, poisonous darts, people who know how to survive in a desert. And what I learned was the value of water. Ugh. I believe I mentioned in the last episode how you could put one drop of water on a plant that looks like it's a stone, it's dead. And all of a sudden it starts opening up, it's green and comes to life. I remember going through this one part of Namibia, absolute pure desert. And in the morning, a mist came from the sea and I could see like a green hue over the sand. Mm -hmm. And one of the sisters explained to me, the mist came from the ocean and right under the sand, there's life. And all it needs is a little bit of water, moisture. It's crazy. And the plants take that and they can survive. And the animals know what kind of plants they can suck the juice out of, the yeah. water out of. And they were enthralled by me because I never knew you could see the rain coming. I mean, look at around here. There's skyscrapers. There's mountains. You can't really... Mm -hmm. You know, it rains. You can't see when it's coming and how it's touching the earth. But that's so flat at this one part of the country. Mm -hmm. I asked a sister once, I said, look at that sky. What is that? There's something like coming down. It looked like fingers coming down onto the horizon. And they said, oh, that's the rain. It's far away, but you can see it's coming. Whenever... I would start traveling, it would follow. I'd say, oh, look at the rain. And so they called me Sister Rainmaker because where I was going, inevitably, the next day it would start raining. And they have two seasons, dry and wet. That's weird. And so what happened was one day it started raining. And the next day I looked the the hills, the nice small hills of the desert were full of flowers. And I mean, burst into purple and pink and yellow and the green around it. And they said, oh, yeah, the seeds are there. All they need is some water. And everything comes to life. It's unbelievable. I talk about a miracle. It's the miracle of water. Yeah. We can't yeah. live without water. Well, neither can the deserts mm -hmm. and the animals that are there. They have animals uh, uh, that I never saw before. 
and I don't remember all the names, but they know how to get water literally out of a stone. They know how to survive on the things that are there that we cannot see, but they can smell the moisture hmm. and it happens uh, unbelievably. There's in the northern part, there's two huge cities, the capital, which is Windhoek, and Keatmansoop, which is another large city. They're the two big cities. And uh, in between, there's roads. And at certain times of the year, they become as hard as asphalt from the, the beating of the sand and the water. Mm-hmm. And many times people are sucked into the current of the water that comes from the mountains. Mm-hmm. It's, it's raining in the mountain and the sand is like stone and it can't absorb the water. So it comes rushing. You can hear it coming. And the bridges are so high. And I asked why is the bridge all the way up there? And they said, wait until the rain comes. You know, it might be 100 feet above the sand. And it's all dry. It's dead. That's crazy. It is. But when these torrents happen in the mountains, there's nothing to hold it. So it comes sliding down. And those torrents come pretty high up to the bridge. And so anything in between is washed away again. However, in the north, it's very different. Uh, They have a huge river that separates Angola from Namibia. And during their war of independence from South Africa, the rebels would cross the border to run away, keep safe. Uh, Angola, they speak Portuguese because it was a Portuguese colony where in Namibia, besides their native tongues, they speak Afrikaans German. In the north, there's a huge uh, wildlife preserve, for want of a word. It's called Etosha National Park. And one of the sisters drove me through and she said, keep your windows shut under no circumstance, open a door or a window. Because it's the animals, mm-hmm. lions, uh, monkeys, baboons, um, giraffes, uh, jackals, hyenas, uh, what do you call them? Elephants. Uh, I almost said kangaroos. It's, um, what do you call them? Long neck. <laughs> uh, giraffes. Giraffes. Yeah, uh, yeah I was going to say, you, just, you said giraffes already. Okay. Oh, get it. Oh, yeah. okay. okay. That's why I was confused. Like, the only long neck that I can think of is a giraffe, but you already said that. I'm thinking, is there another one? <laughs> no. What happens is Atosha has the balance. I mean, they kill each other for food. You know, it, they hunt each other. When it's the dry season, they share the same watering holes, but they keep their distance from each other. They know where they can mm-hmm. go. One day, we're going through this Atosha National Park, and the sister, they have the English style, the driver's side is on the right. Okay. And so she's driving and I'm 
on the left, seeing, watching everything. And she always went somewhere with a big plastic bag. And I said, what is she doing? And she says, you don't see this. I said, what? She quick opens the door, sticks her hand out with the plastic bag and pulls it in. And it's the dung from the, after, uh, from the elephant. And she said, this is like our Vicks vapor. They take it and over water, they, they steam it and it helps clear the air in their houses. Now their houses are uh, not wooden houses or cement houses. They're made out of different natural ingredients with a hole that the air could go through. Anyway, uh, she did this several times and I was getting nervous. I said, I thought you said, don't open the door or window. She goes, I told you not to. I know how to do it. I said, yeah. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do, right? Exactly. But you see the spring boxes literally springing along. One of the most famous pictures I took was a giraffe. Three feet are in the air and only one's on the ground. I, I don't know how they do it. But they're just so graceful. Mm -hmm. And see them literally necking i think that's where we got the word from necking okay. <laughs> <laughs> literally it could be. It could be. that must be their love dance mm -hmm. but the most scary were the lions and yeah. the jackals mm -hmm. they could be very vicious and you see something is down on the ground and then they're tearing it apart and using it for mm -hmm. food however in all of that, there is the balance. Even the animals don't take more or kill more than they need. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a lesson to the rest of us who might overindulge, hoard. They don't do it. They can't do it. They can't preserve. And so from nature there, the people learn how to share. Oh, and they love to share. Unfortunately, and I'm a, I'm good for adventure, but this one I passed on. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> well, you know, when the caterpillars are getting thicker and thicker during whatever season it is, they wait till they get very big and then they roast them. And yeah. I mean, I know in this country, some people eat chocolate-covered ants or chocolate-covered this and that. Oh, yeah, grasshoppers and everything, yep. Uh-huh. Well, that's pure prote protein for them. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't do it. But they would eat it and cherish it. You know, it was pure protein. Man, and if, again, if it's something learn... that you grew up with, it's something that is just normal. You don't think of it oh, as yeah. different. We think of it as different because we yeah. have access to so many other forms of protein. Right. We don't eat that. So, right. Yikes. Right. Yeah. I ate a lot of different things, especially in Papua New Guinea. Um, and I never asked what I was eating. I didn't want to know <laughs> until after the fact. <laughs> so what is, okay, so let, let's get to food. What is the strangest thing that you were told what it is that you ate? I knew it when I was eating it, 
uh, octopus because I was eating a tentacle. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. people eat yeah. that. So that's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I um, know I ate uh, different birds. Okay. Um, I probably ate a cat or a dog here and there that I didn't know about. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, that's yeah something that happens in other countries. So, yeah. Right. Um, the one thing I had a hard time doing was eating the head of a fish. Because, see, that's the most uh, succulent part mm-hmm. for the, most people in these countries. And they would, you know, put a whole fish that was either cooked on a fire outside and put it on leaves mm-hmm. or a plate. And as the honored guest, you're given first choice. And I said, oh, you do. I know you love this. You do this. You take that one. I'll take the, the other part yeah, yeah. of the fish. But um, also, it, what is it called? Um, they would eat uh, like mules or donkeys, you know, and uh, that's a, a delicacy, too. I mean, it's food, just not what we eat. Yeah, it's not you normally. Know, yeah. You know. And I'm sure there are things that we eat here that people are like, why would you eat that? Exactly. Exactly. It's, yes, it's yes. just a part of their heritage and their customs. So, right. I mean, right. I, yeah. I'm, we're not here to judge. I'm here to hear your stories. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm right. thinking I would have lost a lot of weight and died of starvation. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it always, I swear, most of the time, everything tasted like chicken. I'm not joking. It really, yeah. I don't know why. People always tell me that stuff tastes like chicken, and it doesn't always taste like chicken. The one thing that I was actually surprised tasted like chicken was frog's legs. Oh yes, escargot. Yes. Uh, no, oh, no, that's fro- escargot. Yeah, no, snails. No, yeah, snails. Uh, no. But I tried frog legs one time at a restaurant. Actually, it was up in Old Forge. Uh, it was a really oh. nice restaurant called Anthony's that my husband and I stumbled upon. It probably, we were way underdressed for that restaurant because it was a nice fancy restaurant. And I'm in like a flannel shirt and my shit kickers and jeans. And uh, we walked in and the guy walks over with like the towel over his arm. And I'm like, oh, "Oh." I'm like, we're not dressed for this restaurant. He's like, we don't have a dress code. I'm like, yeah, it looks (laughs) like everybody else is dressed up really nice here. And he's like, oh, we don't have a dress code. I'm like, okay. But we tried that there. We ordered it just because it was on the menu and we were feeling adventurous. And it just tasted like boiled chicken. It didn't have, it, it wasn't oh. as bad as I thought it was going to be, but it was, uh-huh. it was an experience. Uh, not one that I think I would do again because one, there's not a lot of meat on it. And I was, you know, mm. when they say frog legs, I'm thinking legs. It was like the whole half back of the chicken. So when they brought it out, of course, me and my foul mouth, I'm like, I thought you said legs. That's like the whole ass. And my husband's like, Ugh, I can never take you anywhere, can I? <laughs> I'm like, well, <laughs> I've never ordered frog legs in a restaurant before. I was expecting to see like little legs. I wasn't expecting to see the whole back end of the frog, you know. But anyway, um, so donkeys and fish heads, fish heads. And I, snakes are snakes. I mean, I've heard of people eating snakes. I mean, that's oh, not, yeah. And I've never tried in it. a lot of countries. They roast them and it's a another food. Mm-hmm. It's just 
what nature what nature produces. Yeah. yeah. I mean it, it and when you don't have access to a store when you have to forage and hunt your food, you eat what is available and that's what's available. That's Yikes. right. Yikes. Yeah. Is there yeah. anything that they tried to serve to you though that you were like besides the fish heads that you were like no, this isn't happening. I I can't even think a fathom putting this in my mouth. Not really. Not really because no. it was well disguised. Okay. Well cooked. All right. Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. if it's well disguised and well seasoned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it always was. And depending on the country, they didn't serve it on a plate. They had it wrapped up in leaves, you know, and they roasted it that way over mm-hmm. a fire or in the ground. So it just depends. Sometimes you really couldn't tell what you were eating. It's interesting, though, the, the just the different places that you've visited and all the traditions and all the heritages and all the people that you've met. I can't even imagine you should really write this all down in a book and, and really write that really go through a detailed experiences with years and pictures and all that stuff. Because it's, I think it's a part of the sisterhood that people don't think about. They don't, you know, you see the nuns and they always think school and they slap my hands and they yelled at me or whatever. <laughs> they don't think about all of the lives that you've touched, all of the things that you've gotten to experience. I mean, honestly, it's, it's pretty incredible because most people have never been able to travel like that or to go into those deeper parts of the world where, you know, their tribals, people have tribes and they don't let just anyone in. So to be able to even get that close, have those experiences, share those customs and stuff, it's really incredible. Um, okay, so I know I'm I'm sorry I kind (laughs) of no you didn't went a little ranty there. I went a little ranty there. Um, (laughs) so uh, do you have any more stories about? I can't remember where we are again. Namibia. We were in. Uh, we were in Namibia. Namibia. Okay, I did have it right. Wow. Yes. Score. Uh. <laughs> One of the, I think I just might have mentioned it. I mean, when I see sand dunes, you know, they're nice. You know, you see on TV, you know, Lawrence of Arabia or something, you know. Mm-hmm. But in uh, Namibia, there's a, an area, the dunes are the highest in the world. And I have a picture mm-hmm. of me standing at the foot of this dune. And I looked like, uh, okay, I'm going to say it was several hundred feet high. And I looked like a little ant at the bottom of it. Are you sure it wasn't an anthill? No kidding. <laughs> no, no. These were sand dunes. Sand yeah, dunes. no, no, I know. <laughs> but um, it's because the way the wind shifts, mm-hmm. uh and it just amazes me how these caravans cross a desert and, you know, taking cargo from one place to the next or what an oasis is. And I see how important it is to travel together mm-hmm. to look for an oasis. And actually, I saw a mirage and I said, oh, my, it really isn't there. But the quivering of the heat above the sand, you could actually see it uh, moving. And 
so something looks close, but it's way in the distance because the way the sun reflects and the water and the, you just can't judge distances. Yeah, and I how these that. people travel um, for centuries and they can find their way to where they're going. It always is pretty me. incredible. That always amazed me too, because I think about stuff like that. We can't do anything without a GPS system anymore. We don't know how to read maps. We don't know how to read the stars. We can barely tell where the sun rises and where the sun sets. If there was some type of EMF or something like that, how would we function? We would have to, this is why skills like this are so important to have, to be able to function without electronics. Mm -hmm. I, But so when you traveled from one place to another, or you were out, did you travel the way of the locals, like on... Uh, oh, camels yeah. and stuff like that or no not a camel not okay. a camel they didn't have camels there no but um a lot of it was walking or in namibia you could actually use a car you could because as i said from north to south the british built uh, a macadam road mm-hmm and from east to west, there's a macadam road. In between, it's uh, dirt, okay? Mm-hmm. But where I traveled the way the locals did was in Papua New Guinea. Um, in On a outrigger canoe, on a barge, on a... One of my favorite stories is playing Tom Sawyer on an outrigger canoe. Now, the outrigger uh, is a, like a platform and it has a half, two uh, arches. And at one end is the where you put the cargo or a person can sit. And there's the canoe, you could, they put planks across, you could sit there. And the women will stand in the canoe with these long poles and they pull along the edge of the shore. Mm-hmm. But if you go out farther, then they would put a um, either oars or a, a some kind of a sail on it. Okay. I was playing Tom Sawyer, leaning against their cargo, and I had my feet over the edge uh, in the water. It was actually down a, a very big river, a huge river. And I was oblivious to everything because it was sand on this, a lot of sand. Mm-hmm. And finally, one of the women said in pigeon, the word puk puk. And that's the word for crocodile. And I looked, I mean, little alligators or crocodiles you see in Florida. Or so, well, some of them are not so little. Mm-hmm. But these were like 20 feet long. And they were the color of the sand. They were not green or brown. They were the color of the sand. And they were laying along the side. But they let me know they come into the water and I better get my feet on the cargo, not playing Tom Sawyer, letting them, because they can come up and grab you. And (laughs) yes. Nice. And lots of times I was in... um, a canoe, an outboard, like motorboat, maybe 20 feet long. It wasn't big. And 
it was either one of the native, usually a native priest would take me to the next place. Mm -hmm. And they always had uh, fish lines they're dragging to get their fish for supper. Mm -hmm. Only I noticed, and all I could think of is the music from Jaws. I see these fins. And they're getting the same way. Oh, they're getting closer and closer. And finally, I called out the priest's name and I said, look. And he went to the back and he cut the uh, fish line because something was caught into the hook and the blood was attracting the sharks. Uh... And a shark over like a 20 foot speedboat wasn't, uh, there's no match. But... You could try to play Russian roulette, but you would. So that so you were you ever really? I mean, besides that time, were you ever scared though? Because the like your the boats were so little, and I don't know how wide the rivers or anything were, but were they pretty big? Uh, The rivers were pretty big. Yes. Mm. Um, I was on a mission boat. Now the brothers actually made these boats from scratch. They were carpenters and mechanics and all this stuff, but. It was traveling at night and you have to have lanterns out, you know, and they're with their flashlights and all this kind of stuff. And what happened was we couldn't see. It was raining so bad. And one of them was like on the front of the boat with a flashlight trying to see where we're going so that we don't get caught on a reef. Um, and a storm came up and that was really scary. That's the first time and the last time I was thinking I was going to die really because you couldn't see, but then nobody could see us coming either. Right. We couldn't see them and you don't know if you're going to go into something. And uh, we did get home safely, Mm -hmm. but uh, you never know. Why were you traveling at night? Because to go from one island to the next takes hours and hours and hours. So it just that you started during the daytime and it got there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because when you say you were traveling at night, they had to fix it and all that uh, kind of stuff. Okay. I was trying to figure out, like, why would you go out at night to begin with? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, It seems like all the nefarious creatures are out there in the dark. So they are. In fact, they go fishing on these outrigger canoes on the outrigger part, they layer it with sand and dirt and they make a fire and that attracts the fish. But it attracts other stuff too. So they have yeah. to be careful. Yeah. <laughs> I oh, keep yeah. I keep my husband watches this TV show called River Monsters. And as you're Whoa. telling these stories, I just keep thinking of all the big fish that he catches and all the weird creatures he catches in the river. And I'm thinking, uh I, I they're real. They're real. They're real. I think one of my scariest stories was um, in all of these places, outdoors, you go to the bathroom outdoors. Mm, And in New Guinea, uh, we washed in the river. And there's certain parts of the river that's for drinking water. That's the deepest part. Uh, So you don't go there. You don't want to contaminate the drinking water. And then there's the area where you can wash your pots and pans. 
extends the area where you can wash your clothes and then the area where you can wash yourself. Mm, okay. And they always say, don't go beyond and they tell you where, because that's where the crocodiles can be. Okay. So this was the very first time I went out and I was being shown the ropes and Sister Roz was with me, showing me what to do, where to go and how to do it. And we went down to the river to wash and we were swimming around and we were at the edge where the river, which is fresh water, goes into the salt water. Okay. And we were that far down and we're just sunbathing ourselves in the water. And all of a sudden, I see these two diamond eyes coming down the river. And I said, Roz, I think it's a crocodile. We we couldn't move. And we said, how fast can they swim? How fast can they run? If we try to get out of the water here and run to the, we weren't that far away. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't know. Will we make it? And as we're debating this, there was a breeze and one eye went to the right and the other eye went to the left. Here it was two leaves diamond shaped as the shape of the, uh, yeah. And because when they come down they're you know, you <laughs> see their eyes, but you don't see anything else. Right. Right. So we didn't go into that water for a long time. A long time. <laughs> yeah, let's just, yeah, yeah. let's just carry the water back up to the thing and we'll bathe in this. We'll figure it out. Oh my gosh. That's insane. Uh, yeah. Yikes. And I think the scariest story of me, when we went in uh, a little canoe or uh, a little uh, speedboat. No, is this still the New Guinea? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because okay. it's ocean. Mm-hmm. I wasn't on any ocean in Africa. Okay. And even in the Philippines, it was city it was things like that most of the stories with the adventures happened oh i lived in papua new guinea for four years that makes a difference a a lot of these places was a month or six weeks or something like so that's a little different yeah but um i had to watch because one time a catechist was taking me and he didn't know where he was he said, you know how to get there. And I am not a sensate person, but I learned to be because there's no street signs. There's no right. blinking light, say, 10 miles this way. So you get to know, oh, that clump of trees that where the island has a sharp bend, things like this. You find your way there. And the one time I got off the little speedboat and the people came to meet me. Some of the men from the village came to meet me. They lived at the top of the mountain. And of course the boat is down in the marshy part and mangroves actually. And they helped me get out. And I, every time they call me sister Pundang means the sister who falls down (laughs) because I was a klutz on my feet. My, (laughs) my sandal would go one way. And my foot would go the other way because everything was slippery. Mm-hmm. And they wanted me to walk on these logs 
going up the mountain. And I call this my highway of uh, my highway of logs. And it had just rained. And so I was having a hard time. And all along, they like burned the bush along the way. So you have these like spikes sticking up. So if you fall, you're going to be impaled. And I feel like this is not me- safe. <laughs> no, 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 no. And there's no ropes holding you together. And I'm going and praying all the way. And as you're going up, it gets steeper and steeper. And finally, I just about lost my balance. And the man behind me grabbed my arm. I thought it would come out of my socket. But he saved me because if I would have fallen, I would have been killed. And finally, we get up to the top. And the women are yelling at the men, why did they bring me up that way? There's a much easier way. So I don't oh know if they were trying goodness. to scare me or what. They were challenging but, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I never went down the logs again. Well, That's I'm going to tell you, it's just like a man to do everything the hard way instead of the easy way. I'm telling you, it's just a man thing. <laughs> but the women had to go down the mountain every morning for water. Uh, in the river. But they didn't go down that way. There's another way you can walk down with a pole, you know, so you don't go slipping in the mud, but right, you can right. do it. And um, you took a shower, they had like a bucket, and they'd fill it and, you know, you just poured it over yourself. But I didn't go down that mountain until I was ready to go. It was just, this, that was one of the scarier moments of my life. That's crazy. So let's, I, I just had something that popped in my head, because I'm not I didn't think mm-hmm. about this previously, but what was it like to, cause you didn't have electricity in New Guinea, correct? No, correct. It, w- it was specifically, you had sunlight when the sun was out or you had light when the sun was out and it was dark. So what was it like to be in total darkness, like darkness and to just not have the electricity. I mean, I don't know, this was many years ago. So this would not have been like the cell phone age or anything like that. Oh, no, no, no. But, cell phones didn't exist. You, you, yeah. didn't even have phones. Yeah. Yeah. But just, I mean, you still had the, the comfort of electricity and TVs and stuff like that. So what was it like to leave America and go over there for four years and not have any of those comforts and, and just learn to entertain yourself and acclimate to a completely different society. Mm -hmm. And that's where I learned my greatest lesson. People are more important than things. Mm -hmm. People are there for you. They're always there with you. They never leave you alone. Um, And it's not just my sisters. It's the native people. We lived right at the edge of a village and we were part of them. And New Guinea is four degrees from the equator. So five of six, the sun went down. Six o'clock in the morning, the sun came up. It's as if God just raises the blinds, you know. Mm-hmm. Here I am. There's no su- gradual sunrise or sunset. It's like switching a, a light switch off and on. Mm-hmm. But it's beautiful. The stars. It's literally diamonds on black velvet. There's no pollution. Right. There's no industry. 
and the Southern Cross is beautiful. But I lost my bearing because I'm used to the Big Dipper and the North Star. Right. <laughs> this is a totally different, it's the Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quiet. You can actually hear the birds. You can actually hear the animals. You, you learn to listen mm-hmm. and hear what's happening. Right. Uh, it's it's a beautiful country. It's beautiful. And they don't call it paradise for nothing. It, it's really uh, awesome. As opposed, the African countries were beautiful in their own right. But it was a different kind of beauty. And where I visited, I have to say visited because I was never there longer than six weeks at a time, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had electricity. They had running water. Mm -hmm. They were not in the villages, but I didn't stay in a village. I stayed in a convent that was with a, a school or a hostel or a, you know, boarding school, something like that, or a hospital. Uh, so it's a different situation, a very different situation. Where New Guinea challenged everything. And we entered into the life with the village. Uh, we saw the people coming every morning down to the river for the water and walking back up to the mountain with it or mm-hmm. their wash or whatever. However, we also became mediaries for the people. They have their own reconciliation right. You know, we might have our confessions or our sacramental experiences of forgiveness or a ritual to say, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. However, they had a little war going on between two villages. And you fight there over animals, brides or land that's the only three things you fight about Mm -hmm. and they had a big fight and we were afraid because we had to go through it's a little lane down to the main road and literally they would be throwing stones and fighting each other and we try to come with our it was a a truck like a toyota pickup truck Mm-hmm. And they would stop, stand aside and give us the sign. Come on through. This has nothing to do with you, sister. Come, come. And as soon as we went through the gauntlet of their lineup, they'd start fighting again. Well, the local priest who was native, they decided to call a truce of forgiveness and settle the score. Mm-hmm. They asked if they could use our backyard. Okay, and a neutral place. And they literally smoked like a peace pipe. It was something different, but the symbolism, uh, an act of forgiveness, they exchanged gifts. And it was wonderful to see, you know, they reconciled in their own way. Mm-hmm. And after that, it was peaceful. Um, however, One day I was going down that road and my truck was a diesel. Okay. And this woman is walking and I'm literally 12 inches from her and she's not getting out of the way, which is unusual. 
then I realized she was deaf. Oh. So I stopped the car and she must have felt the vibrations because she turned and she was carrying something on her head. And I just gave her the sign, come. And I opened the door and I helped her get in the truck. I know she was going up the steep mountain. So through sign language, she uh, told me which way to go. When I got up to her village, she signaled to wait. So I just, because she didn't talk pigeon, only her language of that clan. Mm -hmm. Some of the men came and she was talking to them and then they came to me. Now they spoke pigeon so we could communicate. And they said, wait here. She wants to give you a gift. A thank you. And she comes out holding something and it looks so very precious to her by the way she's carrying it. When she opened her hand, it was a half smoked cigar. And I looked at it realized this was her prized possession. And I'm glad I knew the custom that I could take it, accept it, reverence it, and let her know I'm offering it back to her. Okay. The relief on her face when she saw that I knew that custom. But they were such a grateful people. And to me, they had nothing but they had relationships That's right. and she valued that I cared to give her a ride. She'd never been in a vehicle before that she trusted. I would not harm her, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Uh, I would be sitting somewhere alone for maybe 10 seconds and somebody would come up and the kids would come up with their mothers. Nobody ever left me alone. Uh, you know, it was like this communal embrace. Uh, you, I, I never felt afraid because they knew I meant no harm. I was there for a purpose. Mm -hmm. They showed me kindness, but I showed them kindness. Uh, I would tell stories, all kind of stuff. But um, like I said, I learned more than I taught them. Right. I learned more from them about interaction and human relationships. Yeah. And, and when you have nothing, all you have is each other and you have right. to depend on each other and you have to know ways to resolve issues. And it, it's amazing to hear these stories because I feel like we have so much in, I mean, and we do, we, we have a lot in this country. We have more than what we need. Mm -hmm. And but we still don't know how to have those basic relationships anymore. We have video screens that we look at. We have TVs that we stare at, but we don't have communication skills. I remember when I was down for my nephew's graduation and you had been there. Uh, oh, yeah. This is when we got to share our glass of wine and have some conversation. And I remember my younger niece and nephew had been home and they had been upstairs playing on the video games and whatever they were doing. And I made them turn everything off and come downstairs and sit and talk with you. And we talked for like two or three hours. And as soon as mom and dad came home and the conversation got broken up, they went upstairs and they started doing whatever they were doing again. And I remember going upstairs and my youngest nephew was sitting in the loft and he said, that was fun. And I've never done that before. 
And I'm thinking, it's conversation. How, do you not talk to anybody? And apparently he doesn't. They uh, text. They, yeah, it's text and it's all through the computer. But that night, he, he actually, when they were just visiting, talked about it again, that it was just one of those moments where we got to learn so much about you. That's where I heard a lot of these amazing stories, by the way. Oh. And uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember my niece and my nephew were totally having a stroke about the snake in the bathroom and stuff that you heard in episode two. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's when I was just like, that's when I fell in love with you. I was like, oh, I love Barb. Oh, She's so you. awesome. But no, but you do you and you have these amazing stories. And when and I've been, I've been thinking about asking you to come on the show for a while. And it just happened that I got to see you a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, you know what, I'm just gonna ask her. I don't know why I was so shy to ask you because you're such an amazing person. <laughs> Thank you. And as you know, I have the gift of gab. I do like to share them. Yes. Yep, yes. But but they're great stories to tell. And they all have some basic meaning behind them too. It's not just about, I mean, it is about hearing the experience, because it's something I mean, You've experienced so much in your years of missionary work, uh, but you also learned so much in those in those times, uh, you know, like hearing total silence, like being somewhere where it's darkness, where it's the silence and you can just focus on your mission, learn about people. There's no distractions at all, you know, um, seeing how other cultures resolve issues and even that that they were arguing with other other each other, they didn't let other people affect that outcome. So you go through, they stop They're You're not a part of the issue. They're going to just let you go. Unlike a lot of what's happening today in the world, everybody feels like they need to bring everybody in on their drama. That's what it's not between me and you. I'm not involved in this. You guys figure it out over there. I'm just going to be sending over here. You know, that's it, that basic compassion and understanding of other people. So they're great stories. And I'm I'm like, really blessed that you uh, agreed to share them with me and my listeners. Um, so New Guinea, uh, I can't what I have a mental block. Namibia, it, Senegal. Namibia, Senegal. Uh, the Philippines, you were there. How long were you there for? Uh, I think it was six weeks, six weeks. I would like to share something about that. I went there from France uh, with one of the team members we were doing a program for four weeks. Mm -hmm. It's conferences, history of our communities. There's a retreat time, uh, a social time, and to know the history from the people there of what their experience is. And we had our three congregations, the Missionaries of the Sacred Heart Men, the Daughters of Our Lady of the Sacred Heart, and some of our sisters who were living in Manila. Mm -hmm. And we were doing this program, this four-week program, in the oldest uh, religious congregation, women's congregation in the Philippines. It was about 500 years old, okay? Wow. And they had a huge amount of property. It was walled. Like, when you think, you know, in the 1500s, it, it was a walled city within a city on the outskirts of Manila. And there it was fine until we got word that there was a lot of violence in Manila. There was fighting and 
the police were out uh, arresting people. I don't know if they were storm trying to storm the palace or what, but it was whoever the president was. They were it was a big upheaval, and I got a message uh, to register uh, at the American Embassy where I am in case I had to be taken out quick because they this was escalating people I think a couple hundred people were actually being killed it was a big like revolution and that's I never experienced anything like that wow but it was a very volatile volatile time in the Philippines and depends where in the Philippines uh it, it could be religious the Muslim Christian it could be uh political uh, corruption. Anyway, um, the sisters heard the plea from the cardinal. His name was Cardinal Sin. He was the head of the Catholic Church in the Philippines, pleading to pray for peace, to support, you know, uh, anybody you can, anybody who's hurt, you know, that kind of stuff. And that was the first thing I heard. They were talking about this. And I said, what's going on? So they told me. And so I was able to contact the American embassy and register myself where I was mm -hmm. in case, just so they knew where I was. But it made something very real for me. There are so many destabilized political areas of the world. And this was like around 2000, mm -hmm. give or take a year or two. And it's still happening. Um, there's the religious element, there's the political element, there's the corruption, there's the murder, there's the insecurity. And yet among that, you can find an oasis of faith, people supporting, reaching out those harmed, those looking for uh, asylum, those looking for help of some kind. And again, it was the community of faith coming together reaching out, and I'd like to say, in the name of the compassion of God, in the name of the forgiveness of God, in the name of love and peace and harmony, to try to bring some sense to this. And it did settle down. I don't know the details of it, because I was not involved personally. Uh, in the physical uh, locale. But the next week, our four-week meeting was finished, and I went into a part of Manila where our sisters lived. Mm -hmm. I think it was called Quezon City. But there, I, it's still etched in my heart. I took photos, but it doesn't do justice. The hovels, the people the poor people lived in, uh, they had, it was like going from my bedroom to your bedroom, to this person's kitchen, to this person's outhouse, to this person's bedroom again. You, you, there was no paths. It was going through people's privacy. Uh, it, there was no uh, doors. There was no I don't know how to describe it. And I'm sure things are different now. 
because this is at least 22 years later. But it was the fear. There were guards everywhere, walking, guarding uh, houses, guarding stores. There uh, was the predominant feel of this area of the city. And yet you could find other places, mainly uh, places of worship, places of a religious gathering where people received others with open arms and were willing to help with food, with medicine, with clothing, whatever. And that whole experience, just um, the haves and the have-nots was so evident there. Mm-hmm. And they were literally juxtaposed. They were right next to each other. And it raised an awareness in me that we have so much and how sometimes we forget gratitude. Gratitude is more like acknowledging I have this because of the goodness, generosity of someone. It could be a family member. It could be my parents. It could be a friend. But above all, it's God's graciousness to me through somebody mm-hmm. that I have what I have, that I am what I am, that I'm educated as I am, that all is gift. And I need to cultivate an awareness of the giftedness of everything. Everything is gift. And to take it, reverence it, and use it for the purpose it was given to me for. I might not know what it is today, but somebody's going to need either me or something I have or know or experienced and will need that to touch their lives. And to me, that's God using me so he could touch somebody's lives as he did so many years ago in the person of Jesus uh, to make a difference. And I think that's about all I can say tonight. Yeah, it's incredible. I I, I really, really, really appreciate you uh, sharing all of this with us and your experiences, what you've learned and stuff. It really is truly a compassionate story. Well, I think it's amazing. And I'm so glad you uh, shared all of this with my listeners and myself, because there's more deep stories here that I didn't get to hear before. Uh, Some of the stuff I had heard and some of it I hadn't. Oh, I know what the question is I wanted to ask you. I was thinking about when you said that your childhood dream was to go to New Guinea. Oh, yeah. Uh, So do you feel that your dream was 100% fulfilled? Or was it more of, uh, not that the dream wasn't fulfilled, because obviously you fulfilled your dream, you went, but do you feel that the experience outweighed the expectation? Definitely. I think my dream was fulfilled 150% more than I ever had hoped for. In fact, I think I mentioned on the one episode that I was able to go back again in the year 2000. And some of the sisters who were in formation at that time, and I gave some classes to, were there now as full-fledged sisters. And um, 
this is 20 years later. Mm-hmm. And um, the country has changed. The country itself has grown and matured, just as these young women had grown and matured and were now in leadership position uh, in our community. Hmm. You know, like we were there to help them grow into whom they were meant to be for their country and their community. Mm-hmm. And then in 2014, I got to go to Peru for, it was about six weeks. We had a chapter of international meeting of representatives from all our countries. And some of the sisters who were young when I was in Papua New Guinea were now in charge of their mission in Papua New Guinea. And we sat at the same tables planning for our congregation's future, what we wanted to see and hope and dream about. And others uh, whom I met from the other sister community uh, lived in Peru and they came running to meet me and, and greet me. Mm-hmm. You know. So it, I have a hard time trying to be incognito anywhere. Somebody usually knows me or remembers me. And I just thank God for what I learned from them and what evidently they did learn from me by osmosis of presence. Well, and plus you do have that wonderful personality uh, just meeting you one time, I wanted to just sit and talk to you for more and more hours than I was given. Uh, so this is truly a blessing to have all these extra hours with you to actually get your story and tell it, because it is very interesting. Uh, but you also left a little mark on the world, because those people remembered you and remembered you enough that you did leave that impression on them specifically. So it's it's incredible that you've seen so many different places. Uh, one other question. Out of all of the places that you traveled, which one was your favorite? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> I was like, did she hear the question? <laughs> oh, yes. Actually, don't laugh. But one of my favorites was Paris. No, I'm not going to laugh at that at all. They eat bread and cheese there every day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Paris was a two-hour train ride from where I lived in the middle of France. Mm -hmm. And after a month-long program, and I was the only extrovert on our team, so the introverts were happy to just be alone and relax and do whatever introverts do. I needed to unwind and just be stimulated to calm me down, Mm -hmm. you know, to tell my story in a way. And that was my way of thanking God for everything that happened that month. And the MSE priests had what they called a house of welcome in Paris, Mm -hmm. where any MSE who came could have lodging there and camaraderie and prayer support, et cetera. Well, they had a room set aside for me because they knew after a meeting, I would lead some of the people to France, to Paris, to show them around before they went home. Or I would lead them 
uh, on a pilgrimage to Lourdes. And Lourdes uh, was a very special place to me. It was a holy place. Um, and I met uh, Jean-Pierre Michel Rivers, whatever the last name was, I can't remember. Um, they had a small uh, hotel. It was really two houses like connected. And they always had room when I would say I'm bringing a group of 10 sisters or so many this, so many that. And we could walk down the main street of Lourdes down to the grotto and the basilica and where Mary appeared and we could have the candlelight procession and see the Knights of Malta wheeling, <coughs> excuse me, uh, all the um, sick people down to the grotto for prayer and sometimes healing. Mm -hmm. And it was always for me, not a physical healing, but every time I went there, and I was privileged to go there at least four or five times. It was an interior healing. My own soul was, it was like Mr. Clean went over my soul. <laughs> I guess I should say uh, the spirit cleansed me of what was burdening me, gave me new life, mm -hmm. new hope, because I saw it from the people around me, their faith. And that link between where I lived in Isidin and talked a lot, where I could relax with my brothers in Christ in Paris mm -hmm. and be supported in prayer and listening and going to Lourdes where I was gifted by my own inner healing each time. I think that whole experience, that dynamic was my favorite. Yeah. And of course, it helped that I could go take the metro and go down to the Louvre and sit outside at the cafes, the Louvre to one side, the Seine River to the other side, Notre Dame to the other side, and, and just sit and take in what I saw, heard, and rejoice in it. And literally, thank God just for being able to be there and be part of so many lives. Yeah. And it's, it's a big piece of history there. You're sitting at all those different places and being able to see all of that. That's definitely a very historical place. Incredible. Oh, yes. mm -hmm. And one last question I just thought of again. I keep saying one more question, but I promise us. Uh, That's okay. I, you I can make two, you. two episodes out of all this. Uh, yeah, I'll have to. Just do, put more ads in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll do what I need to do. Um. Is there one person that you met along the way that made a big impact on you? And what was that impact? The person who made the biggest impact on me was Father Juanis Rosier. He's a French priest. And okay, if I'm 74 now, he has to be 80 something going on 90. Okay, he's mm -hmm. retired and he was a person who knew, he was a linguist, who knew many languages. He was a nuclear physicist before he became a priest. Uh, he had stories of being drafted in World War II to be a paratrooper. They were conscripted during World War II. Um, he was 
the gentlest, most knowledgeable, best storyteller, loved history, and loved to pray and taught me how to pray slowly because they purposely prayed slowly in French. So we Americans who were part of the staff could keep up. They bent over backwards to welcome us into their community. Um, he was the heart of what it meant to be a missionary of the Sacred Heart. He was compassionate, listening, kind, always affable in the best sense of that word, wanting the best for you, seeing that you got what you needed, uh, generous, kind, uh, and whenever he gave a tour, I made sure I was right next to him so I heard all his stories. Uh, <laughs> because the town we lived in, Isudan, is a very historic town. Mm -hmm. uh, Joan of Arc passed through. Um, there's the inn called, uh, in English, the Three King Hotel. Uh, Frederick Barbarossa, one of the Louis of England, and one of the guys from France, I forget which things they were. They met there to plan one of the crusades. And oh, uh, wow. I mean, there's just so, so much history in that town, mm -hmm. so much history. And the Catholic church there was built on top of an old Roman um, temple. You know, there, there, it, it's just such a historic place. Uh, yeah. And, he just exuded knowledge. He loved to share it. And he was a good storyteller. And I think that influenced me very much. Nice. And so I love for his community. Have you had any contact with him since you've been back into the States? Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. good. Yes. Good. Oh, That's yes. Something like that. If he had that profound impact, it's nice that you're able to keep in contact. Yes. So yes. That's good. Definitely. All right. So I'll give you any final words. My final word is thank you, God, for the gift of my life and how you used me to celebrate your gift to me. That's amen to that. Amen to that. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your stories. I actually have some pictures that uh, Sister Barb was generous enough to share with me that I'm going to be posting out on social media. And uh, don't forget, you can follow me at Damn It Beaver on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's Damn It With Beaver and on MeWe, Damn It With Beaver. Uh, make sure you like, follow, share because you'll be able to see these wonderful pictures that Barbara sent me uh, about her time in the missionary around the world. Thank you again, Sister Aunt Barb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I again I super appreciate you uh, sharing your stories with myself and my listeners thank you it was my honor yeah thank you mm -hmm.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.